Yes. Good morning. Okay, first things first. Um, Patricia Harless won her election. She's now state rep. And we've got the family photo up there because uh, her husband uh, got splinters putting signs all over Kingdom Come and has to take them down now by my understanding, so that's probably a prayer request. And we threw Sam up there too because he was in the picture. Um, <clears throat> Debbie Riddle won. She's not here this morning. but uh, And Rhonda's brother won. Rhonda Barhorse brother won. I don't know if we have any other elected officials in here who won, but if we did, congratulations. And if we have any in here, well, we've got Brother Kubosh. Okay, sorry. You know, and I never even told anybody you were running. I am a failure up here. But he is a super guy who would have done a super job and may run again one day and do something. So thank you. Um, Congratulations. Now, the other first things first, which technically should be second things second, but I couldn't say this was second, so I said it's first. It's just the other first. Is that fair? Okay, I'm a lawyer. We can do these things. This is called word games. Um, Other first things first. Anybody here ever heard of John Michael Talbot? Okay, I'm glad. Because next Sunday, he'll be here in our class. He's going to play at least three songs. I told him the hard part is for him to come in and play because I don't really want to teach. I'd rather just sort of listen. Um, but he's really only coming in to play because I am teaching St. Francis of Assisi next week. And, and uh, 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 the Franciscan Order is one that John Michael's been a part of. And he's, uh, he's about to record his 50th album. Um, this is a fellow who in the late 60s and early 70s was in a... a, a, a folk rock band called Mason Prophet. God called him uh, uh, out of that into ministry, and he's put out Christian albums now. And uh, uh, he doesn't play churches like um, we're having him do. He doesn't come and play a couple of songs in a Sunday school class. Uh, uh, he, uh, he, he really doesn't. He's doing this as a favor for us and, and for the class because he's been following along. He's one of the guys I send my lessons to ahead of time and say, uh, like, have I messed up anywhere here? And he gives us great thoughts, and he's very appreciative of this class. So he will be here next Sunday. I tell you that for two reasons. Number one, please come. Number two, please bring somebody. I would love to have standing room only for him. Number three, I'll send a letter out this week to remind you. But I've also told him, even though he doesn't do this for a living, all of his money goes into the community of which he is a part so he doesn't come here and, gee, you pay $18 for a CD and, and all of a sudden he's got an extra you know, $18 in his pocket. Uh, he's taken a vow of poverty uh, uh, and all of his money goes into his community. But he does still uh, help that community and ultimately his, his own food, I'm sure, uh, uh, by selling CDs. So uh, with Christmas around the corner, uh, I've told him to go ahead and bring some CDs uh, to sell. He's written four or five books. I don't know if he'll bring any of the books, but he is truly a phenomenal man of God. And I tell you this, I, I'm, I don't have a lot of time for lesson today, but I want to tell you this too, because I don't want to say it in front of him. Um, <clears throat> I love music. Okay. I've, I love music. I, I, I have music everywhere around me. Uh, Becky's even music to my ears. I mean, I, I love music. Okay. Um, I have seen in concert, I think, the best of the best. I've been very blessed in my life to get to see in concert some truly incredible people. 
Um, and there is a difference between people who can mechanically do music and people who really have the gift where it just, it's, it's transformed who they are. And, and, and he's one of the few that truly has the gift. I've seen him uh, perform, and, and he's a friend. He's, he's, he's played for us in our home. Um, but he's got the gift, and we will be touched, and so will anybody you bring. So please come next Sunday and bring somebody. Uh, it'll be great. Um, okay. Now, anybody recognize this? Ooh, I have messed up severely. Y'all don't mind if I change real quick, do you? View presenter tools. Okay. Let's see if this works. Does that work? Okay, thank you. Um, now, we'll get back to where we were. Anybody recognize that? That's Claremont, France. We're coming up on a really significant anniversary of Claremont, France. November 27th, 1095. So, yeah, maybe maybe over a thousand years ago. That's okay. That's why you may have forgotten the anniversary's right around the corner. (laughs) On November 27th, so it would have had maybe a little snow in the mountains, maybe not, but it would have had cool, crisp fall weather at least. There had been about a 10-day conference that the church had in Claremont, France, and they dealt with all sorts of little issues. But there was rumors that on the last day of the conference, the 27th of November, the Pope, who was in attendance, had a very significant announcement to make. And so instead of in the council hall of the church uh, 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 that day taking place, all of the town was urged to turn out, not only all of the town, but the countryside. People from near and far were urged to come. And out in a field, a platform was built. And the Pope took the platform, Pope Urban II. And in Claremont, France, on November 27th of 1095, the Pope gave a speech. He gave a sermon. We've got some copies of it from, it wasn't a verbatim record someone took, but various people wrote down what they heard the Pope say that day. And you can read those. I'm going to tell it to you in short. The Pope said the following. Oh, you Franks. Because he's speaking to people who were Franks. Oh, you Franks. God's chosen people. Wonderful people who've come near and far to hear me. He said, there is a danger. A danger that lurks not only for you, but that threatens Christendom. The danger is to the east, where infidels have arisen and are attacking God and his people. These infidels are taking men and making cuts in their stomach and taking some intestines out and tying them to posts and then turning loose animals and others to chase the men so the men have to run around and see their entrails fall out. These infidels are raping the women, which I shouldn't, the Pope says, I shouldn't even say because it's not polite to say, but it's worse not to mention that it's happening. He says, people are being gruesomely annihilated, are forced to convert to the infidel's religion of Islam. 
And so I call you to arms. I call you to arms. Let's go out, go to the east, and go fight for God. And go fight for His church. And that was the first call from the Pope. The first call for Christians to go to war to fight the holy war that we call today a crusade. Historically, there were a lot of crusades. Uh, they, the, the scholars, the historians number them. The first crusade, the second crusade, the third crusade, on and on and on. Problem is, eventually, these holy wars uh, uh, weren't just against Muslims, by the way. There were holy wars against Jews. There were holy wars against heretics. There was Finally, one of the holy wars goes and sacks the Eastern Orthodox Church. But this initial holy war, the first crusade, declared in November 27th of 1095, was the one that, that uh, uh, lasted uh, uh, almost uh, five, six years, and it's the one that resulted in a recapture of Jerusalem by Christian forces as opposed to the Muslims that had been in Jerusalem. Now, um, I want to ask this question as we start out with class. Why? Why would the Christians go to war as a church, if you will, this is not one country fighting another country. This is the church calling together soldiers to fight for the church and God. What is a Christian war? Why would the individual people go? These aren't people who were drafted. These aren't people who are in a military for a job. They're not learning skills like our armed forces teach people so well today that apply later. There's no GI Bill. Why would someone... Go enlist and fight in this war. With those questions, let's go to work. <clears throat> Y'all remember this? Okay, if you're still having trouble with the map that I drew by hand, okay, I confess, I use like tracing paper over <laughs> another map, but I colored it. That's Africa. That's the Middle East. That's Europe. If we, I, we've got to set the stage to understand historically what was going on to answer these crusade questions, okay? So, um, that's, that's the, the world. Now, here's the Roman Empire at its peak. Of course, the Roman Empire has dissolved by the time we're talking in 1095. The Roman Empire, what's left of it is just a little vestige over here around Turkey and Greece. That's about all that's left. The Eastern Roman Empire has really shrunk down. The Western Empire, it's been gone since the late 400s. So um, what we've got at this point in time by 1095 is a little bit of the Eastern Roman Empire still left. It's also called the Byzantine Empire. You familiar with the word Byzantine? Um, Byzantine, sometimes it's used as a word, like Bob comes up with all sorts of Byzantine ideas. Okay, that means they're wacko and bizarre. Um, not, Bob is not Byzantine. His ideas are Byzantine. Um, the, uh, the word comes from Byzantium, which was actually the, the name for Constantinople before Constantine went and restarted the city up. So it, it keeps that word. Well, you've got a little bit of the Roman Empire left over there. But over here, all of that red going down into Italy, that uh, is uh, mainly the Franks. The Franks were a bunch of different Germanic tribes that bound together. 
Uh, one of their major towns, anybody care to guess what it is? Frankfort. That's right. Frankfort. That's, in fact, our hot dogs, Frankfurters, come from that. Uh, the English word, let me be frank, comes from the Franks because they were where they lived and ruled. They were the only free people. No one else was a free man but the Franks. So let me be frank or let me speak frankly means let me speak freely. Okay, that's the way that word came into the English language. Well, the Franks are the ones that are ruling in that area. But all of the tribes aren't united. It's not like, oh, in the 800s we had Charlemagne who was a king that, that basically ruled the whole area. Charles the Great is Charlemagne and uh, same thing. But other than Charles the Great and Charlemagne in the 800s, that really dissolved and the, all of the tribes are all fighting against each other trying to be the, the united force of the Frank Empire. In fact, the fighting, if we're to put the fighting up here, the fighting is not only taking place here as the Byzantines are fighting the Turks. And the Turks are a specific part of the Muslim religion that are really causing a lot of troubles over here against uh, 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 the Eastern Roman Empire. But the Franks, they're all fighting each other. It's just night versus night, you know, and each night follows their little, the, the, the little kingdom and the little castle they've got. This is the Middle Ages. These are the Dark Ages. Progress has been real slow. There aren't, you know, you're saying, hey, Lemire, you just kind of skipped from 700 to 1,000. Yeah, but 300 years, I mean, if you've seen the Monty Python movie, you've seen what happened those 300 years. It, it just, there wasn't a whole lot. And so we've got to try and get to the Reformation movement. And I thought, what better time to skip than the Dark Ages? It, there's just not a lot going on. But knights are fighting knights and little tribes are fighting little tribes. Not only is that fighting, that's the political landscape. You with me? Now let's paint the church landscape because there's fighting going on there too. You see, in 1054, the Catholic Church split. It split between the West and the East. This is... Red circles where the Western church was. And the Western church was really uh, 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 the church that responded and, and recognized the Pope as the leader of the church, the bishop among bishops. The Eastern church was still over here where the Eastern Roman Empire was. Okay? We call these churches something today. I want to put today's language up. What do we call the Western church? That's right. They're the Roman Catholic Church because it was in Rome where the leader of that Catholic or united church was. What do we call the Eastern churches today? That's right, Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox. Now, don't get me wrong. If you were to talk to someone in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they would tell you they're the Catholic Church. And if you were to talk to someone in the Roman Catholic Church, they would say, well, we're Orthodox. But for some reason, those are the names that we assign to them today. And so these churches split finally and formally where the Roman Catholic Church excommunicated. I say finally. That's not fair because they're still working right now to try and come back together. Okay? So excuse me, that's a, a Protestant error in my statement. But the, the Roman Catholic Church excommunicated the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Eastern Orthodox excommunicated the Roman Catholic Church. There was a, a chasm, a split, over mainly two issues. 
Now, that's the way historians like to look back at it, and that's probably accurate, but really there had been differences that had been developing for a long time. You've got to remember the Eastern Orthodox Church is still reading and writing and talking in Greek. The Roman Church is in Latin. They're thinking differently. They're processing things differently. The, the Eastern Church has never really accepted papal authority, and the, the, the Roman Church has always been frustrated with the way the Greeks were running things over there. So... One of the two issues that scholars say caused the ultimate division and excommunication of the church was something that I've called emperorism. I've made that word up to my knowledge. I don't think you're going to find it anywhere, but I needed something really short to go with Kaiseropapism. I did not make up Kaiseropapism. If you were going to guess which word did he make up, you'd have probably guessed Kaiseropapism. But I didn't make that up. But that's where we'll start. Kaiseropapism is what the Eastern Orthodox Church said the Roman Catholic Church was guilty of. Let's break the word apart. Kaiser is Caesar. Papism is Pope. They said the Roman Catholics is like C the, the Pope is Caesar. You know, they don't have even a big... You know, Charlemagne, he was the big king that in anybody's memory in the 800s, I think it was 800, Christmas Day 800, he was crowned king of the Holy Roman Empire, which is what they were trying to claim was reunited under him in 800. But it was the Pope that crowned him. See, the, the Pope is, is the authority over here. Everybody reports, it's like the Pope is Caesar. And the Eastern Orthodox Church is saying, the Pope shouldn't be Caesar. He's a bishop of Rome. He's just kind of gotten out of hand. Meanwhile, the word I made up, emperorism, is what the Roman Catholic Church was saying was wrong with the Eastern Orthodox. What, did it, what, do, what do I mean by that? Well, Eastern Orthodox, the, the Eastern Roman Empire still has an emperor. I mean, they can mark the chains all the way back to uh, Caesar Augustus. They've still got an emperor. And that emperor in the Eastern Roman Empire really did kind of rule the church. He had the power to excommunicate. He had the power to drive people out. He kind of picked the Archbishop of Constantinople and held him accountable. And so what the Roman Catholic Church was saying is, hey, Eastern Orthodox, don't throw rocks at us. You've got the problem because you've got a secular emperor who's running your church. When the church ought to be run by... The clergy. So that was one fight. Second fight. You're going to love this one. The filioque fight. <clears throat> you got to say it. Filioque. Filioque. Oh, you just speak such good Latin. Um, filioque. Two words. Filio is brother. Oh, no. Son. Excuse me. I switched to Greek for a minute. Um, filio means son. Like Filial relations is relation through a son. Quay is just a simple word that means and. Okay? The filio quay was like the straw that broke the camel's back. You're saying, what's the filio quay? Unless you're reading along and you're ahead of me, at which point just keep reading and I'll catch up in a minute. The filio quay, way back in Lesson 17, the Nicene Creed, when the church was struggling over Jesus and the nature of Jesus and the Trinity, and was there a Trinity? 
the Nicene Creed, as the third part of the Trinity says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. That's why the Nicene Creed was written in Greek. Now, the Greek in the Eastern Church always struggled with the Trinity. So to them, it was so important to keep the Nicene Creed exactly that way, focusing, as it does, on the Trinity. Meanwhile, the Roman Catholic Church and the Western Church has had a huge struggle over Jesus and whether or not Jesus was God or or man or God and man. And so the Roman Catholic Church, with its struggle in Latin, was using a Nicene Creed that said, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And how do we say and the Son in Latin? Filioque. So the Nicene Creed in Latin has added to it and the Son. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And the Greek Orthodox are saying, that's, if not outright heresy, at least wrong. And who gets off changing the Nicene Creed when all the churches recognize it and everybody voted on it and it's been orthodoxy for 500, 600 years? Meanwhile, the Roman Catholic Church is saying, hey... It's, he proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Son says, unless I go to the Father, the Holy Spirit, but I will send the Comforter. So whether it's in the Nicene Creed or not isn't really that relevant. The point is, he proceeds. And so that was it. That was the big split. Now, to the Crusades. Oh yeah, we're doing good. We just got a couple hundred years to cover in the next five minutes. Um, I ask you this question. This is where we started. Why? And I want to break it down. I want to ask, why did the governments want the war? Because the governments did. You see, Pope Urban II didn't just stand up on November 27th, 1095, and say, let's go wipe out the infidels. The emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire said, we're getting whipped by the Turks. We need some help. And he actually made an appeal to Pope Urban in Rome and said, can you get us some help? Of course, all the emperor wanted, most scholars think, is a few mercenary troops sent over. Never dreamed the pope would do what the pope did. The pope ultimately sends about 150,000. That's a huge army back then. That's a huge army today. How many people do we have in Iraq? Less than that? Right about 130, isn't it? Okay, he puts together 150,000. Now, not all of them are great shiny knights. In fact, there are a bunch of common people that go and, and ultimately get slaughtered following a, a guy named Peter the Hermit. But, yeah, no, not Herman's Hermits, Peter the Hermit. But these, these, these go out there and they go out to fight because the governments, why do the governments want the war? Well, first of all, over here, the Byzantine versus the Turks, they need help. The Byzantines need help. They're losing. Meanwhile, what's going on over here with all the Franks? It's knight versus knight. You know, you got all these knights. You know what knights do? They fight. Okay, anybody have kids? Anybody ever have kids that fight? Sometimes you just got to send them outside. That's what the government's doing. Hey, you want to fight? That's fine. You all go outside to play. 
wouldn't it be nice if instead of this castle fighting that castle and this Lord taking his knights against that knight, wouldn't it be nice if we could get all of these knights and just send them off to do what they do somewhere else? It's a great idea. We need a war. So, the Byzantines need the help, but the Franks need to stop the internal fighting. So they send them off. Now, next question. That's why the governments wanted the war. Why did the Pope want the war? Well, it's very interesting. Look at it. Let's go back to our map. Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox. Emperorism, Kaiseropapism. Now, the church split 50 years earlier, 51 years earlier, because the Eastern Orthodox and their emperor were not capitulating properly in the Roman Catholic's mind to the Pope. By the same token, the Eastern Orthodox Church is saying, what do we need from that Pope? We do fine without him. And now the Pope comes to the rescue. Whose side was God really on? The Pope's got to come rescue the Eastern Orthodox Church, its members, and its government. And he didn't do it by sending a few hundred or thousand mercenary soldiers. He raised an army of 150,000 Christians to go fight the infidels. Now, that's one motive. Don't get me wrong. There are going to be many motives. I mean, a, a pope, a human being who hears accounts of what was going on over there couldn't help but be moved and have compassionate reasons to want to go defend those people, right? And, and I don't want to sidestep that, and I don't, certainly don't want to impugn negative motives. I'm just saying, in the whole picture of things, this is what's going on. Now, let me go another step. Why would individuals want to go fight? Oh, scholars used to say, well, they're going to go get a lot of booty. They're going to make some money. Treasure. But most scholars discount that now because they recognize it was very expensive. You had to raise your own horse. You had to raise your own food. You had to raise your own support. You had to buy your own weapons. There wasn't any pay. The chance of booty was slim and far. You were about to travel 3,000 miles and lay your life on the line against a, 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 an army that you've been told is incredibly vicious beyond all imaginings. Well, I think the individuals, uh, first of all, had some very good spiritual motives. I mean, the, the Pope makes that speech, right? The Pope says this is a rescue mission. Um, if we go back, uh, I was able to find some actual footage of this. We must fight the infidels and save mankind, the Pope said. And the knights and the troops, one and then another and then another, and then in chorus, they all start saying together, Deus levolt! And fortunately for us, there was someone else who said, huh, I know what that means. It means God wills it. This is God's will. And so that's the reverberating cry. Most scholars think it was planned ahead of time. But the reverberating cry starts out. And the soldiers get excited. 
And the knights get excited and the people get excited. And they all see this as a holy, divine appointment from God to go do their rescue thing. Now, there were some other motives, too. Whoops. And so we've got to digress. How many of you have a Catholic background? Okay, good. Then you may know everything I'm about to say. So this is put on another level for us Protestants that don't have a Catholic background. By the same token, a lot of people with a Catholic background don't have all this stuff plugged in, and so maybe this helps you plug it in. We're going to make some digressions here. We've got to talk about penances and indulgences. We've got to talk about purgatory for a moment. And we might as well cover mortal and venial sins while we're on the subject. Okay? You Catholics know those words? All right, good. Okay, first of all, that's the man. Okay? He's a sinner. He commits in Catholic theology two different classifications of sins. There are mortal sins. Those are really serious sins you do on purpose. I mean, that's killing somebody. That's murder. That's uh, robbing. That's adultery. Those are clear, serious sins. That's not to say that some sins are more serious than others. All sin in the Catholic Church, as well as in Protestant churches, all sin separates us from God. The smallest sin is, is, is enough to send anyone out of God's presence, which is, by definition, hell. But in the Catholic Church, there's also a recognition, and we don't use these words in Protestant churches, though we recognize it's a little bit worse to kill someone than it is to speak badly of them, even though both are equally bad in an eternal sense. A venial sin, then, in the Catholic system is, is one that's a little less tragic. Maybe it's not on purpose. Or maybe it's one that you did because the circumstances kind of forced you into it. You know, if the Nazis are at your door, banging on your door in World War II, and they say, do you have any Jews hidden in there? And you say, no. Well, you've lied if you've got Jews hidden in there, but the circumstances kind of dictated that you lie. It was the lesser of the two options that you had. And so that would be a venial sin, not a mortal sin. Or speaking unkindly about someone is venial sin. You all with me? Protestants with me? Catholics want to take issue with me? Okay. Now, let's uh, cover purgatory while we're digressing. Purgatory is not used as a word in the Bible. The Bible doesn't directly really teach about purgatory. Arguably, there's a passage or two in the New Testament that could reference it. There's a passage in Maccabees that might, rec- re- that, that, that might reference it or, or at least certainly gives an implication that, that something like purgatory is working. Um, but, but Maccabees is not recognized as Scripture by Protestants because it's in the Apocrypha. So in the, and, and so what is purgatory in the Catholic doctrine? Well, when you die, if uh, the Catholic view is there are three, you got three places to go. If you die as a saint, you die with all your sins forgiven and, and, I mean, everything's paid up and you are saint material, you go to heaven. If you die and you are unsaved, then you go to hell. But the big group of people in the middle, who are Christians at least, 
there's a huge group who aren't all caught up in living the saint perfect life. And these go to purgatory, where they pay, uh, Aquinas says it's a very painful, more painful than anything we've experienced on earth, but, but where a payment in essence, a purging takes place. A, uh, uh, it, it prepares you for heaven. And depending upon how bad you are, or you've lived, and, and what you've accounted for, and what you haven't accounted for, that's how long you're going to spend in purgatory before you get on up. Okay? So, um, now our sinner's dead. Um, <laughs> I was very thankful for the rotate button on PowerPoint. It saved me from redrawing the poor guy. Um, you go to purgatory to purge or pay for unforgiven venial sins. Those lesser sins that have never been forgiven for some reason. Or you go for forgiven venial and mortal sins. You have less of a price to pay if you've been forgiven your venial sins. Now, if you have mortal sins that you don't get forgiven, then you're not in purgatory. You're going to hell, as I understand it. But, but uh, uh, by as I understand it, as I understand Catholic doctrine, okay. So the question becomes: What if this is your destiny in Catholic system? This is what's going to happen. Let's get our guy back alive. What do you want to do while our guy's still alive? Well, one easy thing is you want to live and try not to sin because you're going to be punished for it. But look at what else you need to do. You need to get forgiveness. So you confess your sins. You go to confession. Um, uh, You need to get forgiveness. And and, and don't get me wrong. This This is not a... This is not the Catholic Church saying, if you don't get forgiven, you're going to hell. This is, this is much more the idea of, okay, you're forgiven ultimately of your sins because of the death of Christ. But there's still a penalty that you've got to pay for your sinfulness. You can stick your hand in fire and you get burned. Now, you may save your hand, but there's still pain and things that need to be done and medical attention that has to be applied. Okay, so one thing you want to do is get forgiveness. The other thing you want to do is try to reduce that punishment time ahead of time. Right? I mean, you're going to get like 12,000 years for doing something in purgatory. I'd try and cut that puppy back. Man, you cut back 12... After 10,000 years, those last 2,000 years are going to be a beast. You want to really reduce down the load, right? How do you do some of this? Well, at the time... Penance and indulgences were an issue. Okay, we've got to move. Here's our person. He has, in Catholic doctrine, there are three effects of his sin. His sin affects three different groups, if you will. First, sin affects God and your relationship with God. Now, that's fixed by the cross of Christ, right? The guilt is forgiven by the cross of Christ, Catholic doctrine. But when you sin, it also is a sin against the church, Because we're one body. And when you do something wrong, it sins against the church. That's where the indulgences come in and where some of the penance comes in, but especially the indulgences. Indulgences were where you would do something and ultimately it became even economic. 
you could pay the church to for, for the forgiveness of the church and the wrong you've done to the church with your sin. Ultimately, uh, one of the popes says, no mas on that because it was being abused. Not unlike some televangelists who say, if you'll send me money, I'll pray for you and help you get healed. We actually have more indulgences being talked about by some people on television in the evangelical, so-called evangelical movement right now than we do the Catholic Church. Who's the, where's the third effect of your sin? Where else does it affect? Yourself. And so the penance, the confession is seen in the Catholic Church as something that helps you process your guilt from the sin, your personal guilt. And so those are the three effects of sin in the Catholic Church. Penance... Confession, repentance, same thing. Repentance is for the sinner. Indulgences help the church. Now, we go back. Why did the individuals go? Do you know what else the Pope did? He said, full penance to anybody who fights. You're skating purgatory. That's a pretty good deal. This could save some serious purgatory time. That same soldier says, this is the will of God. And not only that, but the church also said, I'm going to protect you. If you've got loans that need to be paid and you're going off to fight, nobody's allowed to collect those debts. No one's allowed to take your property while you're gone. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to protect your family. So it's going to help with the debts and everything else. These are some reasons the individuals went. Now, what we're seeing here in the Crusades is a fundamental building block to understanding the Reformation movement when Luther came in because of some of the abuses that happened over time and some of the problems that he saw. So this is a necessary class for that. But I don't want to leave without some points for home, so here are the points for home. War. Why do we as Christians agree to fight in wars? God says not to murder. Why do we as Christians agree to take up arms and try to go kill people? Um, one reason that's given is submission to government. The idea is if the government says go, you go. There's no such thing as a conscientious objector. If the government says go, you go. Romans 12.1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. I've tried to stay in Romans as much as I can for this to show you how... You, you, you need to read the whole thing. Um, other people say th that of an appropriate war, a just war, is God's righteous fight against evil. And so it's okay as long as you're going to kill evil. You know, Paul says love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good in Romans 12.9. So as long as you're going to kill evil people, that's God's righteous judgment against evil. And that's okay to do. Now, there are also Christian pacifists who say, war's not right, period. You find another option. But you do not go take someone else's life. Christian pacifists will use verses like Romans 12, and I've taken some of the snippets out from 12 through 17. Be patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony with one another. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And then uh, um, there's my view, uh, where I am today in my life. Uh, and, and I've kind of marched all over these issues in my life um, uh, as a young guy especially. But I see war as a last recourse is okay before God for Christians to uh, be involved in. 
Uh, I thank people who are serving in the military. I thank people who serve as police officers because the same issues confront a constable Ron Hickman because he may have to draw his gun to protect somebody or the people under him. And he's got to sit there. But as I know he would do, and as I know our military would do, and as I hope and pray that our government would do, war is a last recourse to stop a greater evil is called a just war position in theology. Romans 12:18. If it is possible, as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's if it's possible. Sometimes it's not. Um, now, the afterlife. There is no doubt, Catholic or Protestant, salvation comes by the death of Jesus Christ. Not all Protestants understand that. Not all Catholics understand that. But that's core theology. That's orthodoxy. The Bible could not be clearer. The righteousness from God comes from through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. All have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. All are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Um, I personally don't believe in purgatory. Uh, I don't have time to explain my reasons for that, but uh, maybe in another class that'd be appropriate, or maybe when we get to Luther and he explained his reasons, I, I can go into a bit there. But I will tell you that there is still room for confession of sin. Just because we have forgiveness does not mean that we're not to confess our sins. James says it, right? He says, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so you might be healed. It's good for us to confess our sins. It affects who we are and how we live. So you find someone and you confess your sins. That's not a bad thing. Everybody needs an accountability partner. Everybody needs someone that they can go to. And sin does have an earthly price. Don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, Paul said, from the Spirit reaps destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit reaps eternal life. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for this class and the honor it is to get to stand up and, and try even remotely to proclaim what you have done in history through your church. I confess readily that I'm inadequate at this, but uh, I am most appreciative to you for the chance and, and to the, my brothers and sisters who listen and share with me. I pray that you will bless these messages, bless them on the Internet, bless them in this classroom, and I pray that you prepare our hearts for your work next week. Uh, uh, bringing John Michael here safely to sing and minister to us, uh, as well as uh, uh, the class that I prepare to teach. Be with everyone in this class. In Jesus we pray. Amen.